Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Cliff Duvinois, and today we are going to the zoo, the Detroit Zoo. Now, it seems like growing up every single year, I either had some kind of school field trip or my family would make that mig migration down to the Detroit Zoo. And this is probably single-handedly the reason why I'm so terrified of spiders, because it was the first time I saw a tarantula in real life. And today we have on the show with us the Chief Operating Officer of the Detroit Zoological Society, Jerry Vanacker. Jerry, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing today, Cliff? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you so much for asking. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? Okay, so I'm a Michigander. been here most of my life. I grew up in uh, Lansing and I went to school, high school on the west side, Waverly High School, and eventually went through college at Lansing Community College and finished at MSU. Go green, go white and finished in, in accounting and hired on with a small hotel company by the name of Marriott. At the time, Marriott had uh, 70 hotels, and I was transferred to Des Moines, Iowa to be the assistant controller there. And uh, as you probably well know, Marriott grew into a really large uh, corporate hotel business. They now have over 7,000 hotels. But I spent most of my career with Marriott of 28 years in the Midwest. I worked in the Detroit market, South Bend, Indiana, the Chicago market, and worked my way up through the hotel business until I was running large hotels as a general manager. And at that point, I was contacted by actually my boss. And he said, I've got a, a great opportunity for you, Jerry. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, the, the zoo's looking for a chief operating officer. And I think it'd be a really nice way for you to uh, kind of round out your career. And after several interviews and uh, conversations with people, I was hired on here at the zoo in June of 2011. And I've been here going on 10 years and have been able to do quite a bit of work here at the Detroit Zoological Society. Was there something about the travel and tourism industry that kind of that, that pulled you into it? Because I know you mentioned before that you, you got your degree in accounting and then you went and started working for, for Marriott and you stayed in Marriott rather than like, you know, perhaps go out and opening your own con, uh, consulting firm or uh, some kind of uh, auditing company or something like that. Is there something about the travel and tourism industry that, that just piqued your interest? Well, it really is in my blood. I, you know, I know it's, it sounds kind of cliche, but I really enjoy working with people and trying to help people solve problems. And that's really what the hospitality and tourism business is about. And, and you know, really running the zoo fit, fit in very, very well. And I was surprised at how my skill set and the things that I had learned with Marriott fit in so well here at the zoo. Uh, for instance, I did a lot of renovation work to hotels while I was with Marriott. I did the renovation at the Dearborn Inn I did the transformation downtown of the Omni to the Courtyard Hotel and worked with the owners from General Motors to transform the Renaissance Center Hotel to a Marriott Hotel. 
And once I arrived here at the zoo, we were in the middle of quite a few capital improvement projects. In fact, in the last 10 years, we've done almost 90 million in improvements here at the zoo. So my skill set in capital oversight, human resources, managing other people really fit in well once I arrived here at the zoo. Peak season, of course, pre-COVID, you kind of have to say pre and post-COVID nowadays, but peak season pre-COVID, we would employ up to 700 people. So there was really a need for you know, a person that had that sort of experience in managing others and effectively managing guests. And uh, so my skill set has really worked out fabulous here. That's excellent. The So going back, so you had a very long, distinguished career working with Marriott. And your boss one day says, you know, I think I think you should go and work for the zoo. What was what went through your mind when he first suggested that or when your boss suggested that? Well, of course, first I wondered if he was trying to get rid of me. Then I realized that he was really looking out for me. And in fact, his name's Bob Farmery, and I still keep in touch with him. He's retired now in Palm Springs, but it it he knew more than I did, let's just say, because he knew uh, the type of manager I was and he knew uh, what my skills were and, and my experiences and knew that I could really be helpful here at the zoo. He knew the, the director here, Ron Kagan, really well. And Bob and Ron were both on the board of the Detroit Convention and Visitors Bureau, which actually I sit on now too. And I guess, like I say, they all knew more than I did because 10 years later, I'm still here and able to be effective. And it's been just a a wonderful experience for me. Now, you mentioned something before regarding a lot of a lot of uh, capital improvements that were being made to the to the Detroit Zoo. What I'd like to do is kind of like take a step back in time and talk to us a little bit before talk to us a little bit about the founding of the Detroit Zoo. For instance, you know, when did it open or just let's just go let's just talk about the history of the zoo sure so actually the first detroit zoo was established in 1883 on michigan avenue right across from the old tiger stadium there was a a circus that had come through town a traveling circus and they ended up going bankrupt here in detroit and they had all these animals and they didn't know what to do with them so (laughs) leading yeah kind of a funny story but a leading detroiter luther beecher Uh, ended up buying those animals and uh, putting them up at the original zoo. Well, eventually that didn't work out really great, and it closed after about a year due to lack of funding. And the building was actually turned into a horse market, and some of the the zoo animals ended up over on Belle Isle. Then in 1911, the Detroit Zoological Society was formed and organized by several prominent Detroiters, and they started to plan for a world-class zoo. And eventually they bought the 125 acres we now sit on. And they hired a, a renowned designer, Henrik Hagenbeck of Hamburg, Germany, who was doing cageless environments for zoos. And he, he was able with his moat design to place animals in what looked like their natural habitats. So the zoo eventually opened here August 1st, 1928. And it was somewhat timely. They did really well in the Roaring Twenties, but then the Depression hit. So the CCC and the Federal Emergency Relief Administration were able to bring people in and 
do quite of the habitat building and the uh, shotcrete work that currently exists here at the zoo. So that kind of brings us, you know, and then the, the zoo had several starts and fits and had some good years, some lean years. And then in 2006, when the city of Detroit was going through financial difficulties, the zoo was spun off and it was actually taken over the management of the zoo by the society. And the city still owns the assets, but the actual zoo is managed by the Detroit Zoological Society. And that kind of brings you up to present day. But like I said, in the last 10 years, there's been quite a bit of development and um, modernization that's really helped our attendance and the product that we're able to offer here. And speaking of speaking of some of these renovations that you've been doing, what are what are some of the share with us some of those renovations that have gone on that has really helped out uh, as far as the zoo goes? Yeah, well, in 2014, we decided just we started the design work for the Polk Penguin Conservation Center that ultimately opened in 2016 at a cost of 32 million. So that was about a third of it. It's the largest um, penguin facility in the world. Well, that's outside of Antarctica, of course, but it's a 33,000 square feet. It houses about 80 penguins and it's just a fabulous, fabulous facility. And then in 2015, we opened the Cotton Family Wolf Wilderness and that was uh, about a $2 million project. And then in 16, we expanded uh, the giraffe habitat thanks to a generous gift from Cynthia and Edsel Ford and that was opened in 2016. And then in 2017, we opened an anaerobic digester, which actually takes all of the, the food waste and the animal waste and converts it into compost that drives a generator and creates electricity. And 2018, we opened a Buddy's restaurant. That was about a million and a half dollar project. And in 2019, we opened the expanded Devereaux Tiger Forest and the Holtzman Wildlife Foundation Red Panda Forest. So the projects have been ongoing and funded really well with local philanthropy. And we've still got a few projects in the works. Now, with regards to the zoo, and, and I want to bring this up because in my research, whenever, whenever I Google, Google these terms, these things always pop up. But there, there seems to be some people out there that always talk about how the, you know, the animals and, and how they're treated and, you know, maybe the zoo isn't the best place for it. But on the same point in time, when I'm looking over your website, the, the Detroit Zoological Society has won numerous awards from different conservation groups. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about, about the, 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 the philosophy uh, that you have with regards to the, the animals and how they're cared for? Yeah, well, Cliff, our mission is really based on four pillars. And those pillars are animal conservation and animal welfare, education. So educating the community and the people that visit here and, and now in a virtual environment. And then sustainability and making sure that we're taking care of the environments that we live in. And we really feel that these four pillars can have the most impact on people that either visit the zoo for you know, kind of like, I, I guess I kind of split it now into two segments. You know, there's people that visit the zoo for the old fashioned kind of entertainment aspect, 
And then there's people that visit the zoo because they're interested in our mission and how they can help and how we can do that through educating them about animals and the environments that they live in. So it's, it's not, I guess, not your grandfather's zoo. It's, it's really a new approach to how zoos exist. And we're really doing a lot of work now, too, to look at the future of zoos. If you talk to you know, the 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds or even teenagers now, they're kind of losing interest in zoos because of the things that you just mentioned, that they're afraid of how the animals are treated. And, but, but really, we belong to an organization called the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the AZA. And the AZA has a SOS program, Save Our Species. And they've designated about 100 species now that they're really targeting to try and, and save and preserve through the work that we do at the 225 accredited zoos across the nation. Nice. And I know before when we were talking about, because you made a comment about some of these new, uh, the new habitats are expanding on these habitats. What is it that drives the decision? Like, how do, how do you sit down as, as a team and say, okay, so we need to you know, we need to put in, uh, you know, a, a, a penguin, uh, you know, a penguin facility, or we need to expand this facility. What, what drives those, what drives those decisions? Well, a couple of things. The AZA has certain groups of people that have interest in certain species. So we know which species around the zoos, there's not a, there's not a financial trade involved with zoo animals anymore. They come free of charge from other zoos, and we really don't take animals out of the wild anymore. So it's really, you know, where there's an interest from those different taxonomical groups and the people that manage those. And then, of course, what comes into play is funding. So if there's a, a donor that has, a, has an interest in a certain animal, that could play into it as well. And then the community and different political or, or community pressures. For instance, we hadn't had gray wolves at the zoo in quite a few years, but there's mo movement in Michigan for wolf hunting and uh, hunting in the UP. I think they've increased the population of gray wolves in Michigan now to almost 700 wolves. And there was a lot of debate around should there be an open season on wolves or not. So we thought it was important that we educate people and tell people how uh, wolves are an apex predator and that wolves are really important to the Michigan ecosystems and that they should really learn about that wolves are really great animals and they're not the big bad wolf that many of us learned about in the Red Riding Hood stories. <laughs> Definitely. When you talk about educating people about how, like just as an example, the, the gray wolf, when you talk about educating people, what are the different ways that you, that you go about? Well, first of all, we find if you can really work on the empathy of a person and develop that empathy that people have towards animals and well, towards other humans for that matter, that that's really the best way to try to get people to learn about them. Because if you feel you know, cl close to an animal or, or, or a person, then you're going to be a lot nicer towards them, right? I mean, it, you, 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 you know, we find that just to tell people 
you know, about how much they weigh and what they eat and where they come from doesn't have as much of a positive effect as if you tell them the animal's name and maybe a little story about where they came from and maybe that animal was rescued from a bad situation, that then they'll have a connection with that animal and they'll feel empathetic towards them and that they'll become much more interested. I know before you mentioned about visiting the zoo, doing it virtually. So is this, is this something that, that you have implemented since the start of this, this, this COVID-19 lockdown, or is this something that you've always had? We've always had it, but of course, it's really been supercharged lately, especially around our educational programs. We've had over 2 million hits now on our educational programming online. Many kids are stuck at home with, you know, in, in home learning and homeschooling, and they're looking for how to learn about science. And we really, on our website uh, and through our different classes and courses that you can take, you can really learn about science and the science behind zoos and, and zoology. And uh, we try to do it in a really fun way. And it's, it's kind of funny because our teachers, uh, who the majority of the 20 some people we have in our education department have teaching certificates, they've really become kind of local celebrities where people nice. tune in and, and we have several new classes every week and they tune into those classes just because they've been really engaging and our education staff has done a wonderful job of being creative in the ways that they present those. But it definitely has been much, much more busy uh, in that area since the um, pandemic. Speaking of which, and I know with a lot of places that you know have opened and, and I know that there's different restrictions for everybody for you know depending on your business 50% capacity or you have to remain closed like you know movie theaters which are opening up soon what what are some of the what are some of the precautions that your that you and your staff have, have put into place so that when when people do come and visit you they can they can make sure that their family can not only enjoy the zoo but at the same point in time feel safe well we've taken a i guess a super conservative approach we really felt that First and foremost, the safety of our, our staff and our guests and our volunteers was the most important thing. So we completely shut down on March 17th, and we didn't reopen until June 8th. In fact, I sat on the Governor's Pure Michigan Board on opening attractions and what our recommendations were. And we initially reopened with attendance of 1,000 people a day and no more than 500 people at any time which may sound like large numbers, but when you spread that over 125 acres, it's only about, I don't know, four or five people per acre. So there was plenty of room to stretch out. Eventually, we ramped up to 3,500 people, and we ran that for a couple of weeks and felt it was still maybe a few too many. So we dropped it down to 3,100 people uh, per day maximum. And then we also made sure that our members were able to to get tickets and come in. Uh, we had 40% of the tickets available were for members and 60% general admission. But all guests had to have a reservation and pre-ticketed. And you had to review the safety protocols when you're getting those tickets. We require face masks, social distancing, and all the CDC recommended protocols. We have over 100 hand sanitizing stations. We close the majority of our indoor buildings. Uh, of course, the restrooms are open and 
the reptile centers open in the free flight aviary and uh, Buddy's Pizza is open with limited seating. And, but for the most part, all of our indoor habitats and attractions were closed. We canceled all of our events, which was really actually more than 150 events that we had to cancel. And then, as I said earlier, all of our education went totally online. Uh, we canceled all of our summer camps. And then with the staff, we made sure we're doing screening every day with the staff and the vendors and doing temperature checks. And then we ultimately, we asked our, our customers, hey, what do you think? How did we do? You know, So we sent out about 16,000 surveys in the summer, June, July, August. We got about 4,000 back, which was a really great, almost 25% response rate. Which is unheard of. Yeah, that's really unbelievable. And I think it speaks to how the zoo is really a beloved institution and people in this community want to make sure that, that they help support us and, and give us that feedback. Our overall satisfaction, and this would be the top two boxes on a five-point scale, in 2019 was 66%, and it just dropped to 60% in 20. And the value for price paid actually went up, went from 48 to 56%. And I think uh, what that speaks to is people felt like it was maybe more of an exclusive experience where they kind of had the zoo to themselves. Our friendliness scores went up from 69 to 78%, being welcoming to all. And we really have a focus on making sure that all audiences are welcome here. People from you know all walks of life and all types of people. And 80% of the people said they felt like the zoo was really a welcoming place uh, for all the guests that come here. And safe for all, that dropped a bit to 71. And I think that maybe some of the COVID fears and how people feel about COVID nowadays, but I think to score a 71 in these times is actually not too bad. I know you made a comment before. This is something that I've experienced with any indoor facility that I've gone to. But most of the time, you know, in the past, you could just have a ticket and go whenever you wanted to go. But now it's not, it's a matter of having a ticket, but also a reservation as well. That's correct. Yep. And that's what we're still requiring. And, you know, now that the fall's here, there's more tickets available during the week. Uh, There's no problem really finding a ticket, making a reservation. Uh, Some of the weekends are still pretty busy though. Oh, I bet. I bet. Now, for somebody that's coming down to the zoo, maybe they're going to you know, make a day of it, hang out with their family or whatever it is. What would be perhaps maybe you know, three things that you would recommend that they see or maybe you know, three things that they should know about the zoo coming in? Well, uh, a couple of things. Our Polk Penguin Conservation Center, we had to close it for some repairs, but we're going to open it back up in November. And you really don't want to miss that. That's a, it's an award-winning facility. It was the best exhibit of the year with AZA in 2016. So you really want to see that because it's quite a spectacle. What else? Well, we're the largest paid attraction in Michigan, paid cultural attraction. So you're really coming to a facility that's very popular, popular with Michiganders. We'll do on a, a typical pre-COVID year, about a million and a half visitors a year which is more visitors than any other cultural attraction in the state. Just little known facts, maybe. We've got a large sustainability effort. So we quit selling bottled water about six years ago. We eliminated plastic bags in our gift shop. Our restaurant was the first 
green restaurant in the nation. And that was uh, about 10 years ago. And we've been recognized for that with the AZA Green Award in 2015. We were also recognized in 2015 as the best managed nonprofit in Michigan. So that's kind of a cool thing. We have 1,200 volunteers. So that's really a large number for a volunteer corps. And 125,000 school kids come to the zoo in any given year. And one other little known fact, kind of quirky, but we sell the most hot dogs in Michigan behind Tiger Stadium. And that's something that we're really proud of. Nice. Nice. Excellent. So if someone wants to if someone wants to follow what it is that you're doing online or, or connect with you online, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, there's a couple of ways. Of course, we're on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and all the social medias, but our website's really helpful too. So if you just click on our website, it's pretty easy to navigate around and see what's going on at the zoo currently. One thing that we've got coming up that I'd like to just tell your listeners about, Wildlife starts the Friday before Thanksgiving and runs uh, through the per- first part of January. So it's 30 nights, 5 million lights, COVID safe, and uh, you will need reservations. But Wild Lights is the best holiday light show in the Midwest, and you really don't want to miss that. Can you give us a little bit of a description what that what the Wild Lights is, or does, does it have sure. to be experienced? Well, I can describe it to you, but <laughs> probably not nearly as good as the actual experience. We wrap over 400 trees. And when I say wrap, I, I don't mean like I wrap the trees in my front yard. They're professionally wrapped and they really, they really look like that. And it's, it's really done by our professional crew that starts in the middle of August. About 15 people start in the middle of August and they're, they're wrapping. And, and then we have about 180 animal displays. So everything's around animals and, and zoology. And the animal displays are fabulous. Some are as much as 40 feet tall. And they're things that you don't see anywhere else except here at the Detroit Zoo. And then we have dancing lights and the light effects. And we work with Blue Water Visual and get new light effects every season so that it's never the same as the year before. Everything's new and intriguing and and different. And then, of course, hot chocolate and other food items are available, hot dogs, of course, <laughs> and it's, it's really a great event and, and really it's a great date night or it's a great family event. And last year we were able to attract 160,000 people and it's really become a family tradition in Southeastern Michigan. Nice. And you said it's the weekend prior to Thanksgiving all the way up until January? Yep, that's correct. And it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights, uh, four nights a week and tickets are available online. We are restricting tickets quite a bit this year and making sure that we're doing it in a safe manner. So get your tickets early. Jerry, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Cliff. Hey everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callleadership.com slash email, type in your email address, and you're done. 
Once again, that's calloflearership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.